open up to Leviticus chapter 11. Right there, in verses 9 through 12, it tells us not to eat shellfish. That's shrimp, as well as basically everything else on the menu at your favorite seafood restaurant. We also can eat pork, according to verse 7. We read right there, in the Bible itself, that one cannot eat ham, hot dogs, bacon, or sausage. If you believe the Bible, this is what it says you can't do. Leviticus 19.28, no tattoos. Leviticus 19.19, no polyester blends. Exodus 23.20, even forbids cooking a young goat in its mother's milk, just in case you were thinking of doing that. What's even crazier are the things the Bible says that you can do. Exodus 21.2 says you can buy a slave. Exodus 21.7 says that a father can even sell his daughter into slavery. So to be clear, God could have said no to slavery, but instead he said no to eating shrimp and cooking a goat in its mother's milk. What do we do with this? How do we make sense of a loving God that apparently cares less about slavery than he does about eating shrimp? Wow, great to see you, Purpose Church. Uh, today we continue with our series, How Not to Read the Bible. There's a six-part series on that 0.1% of the Bible that is the most difficult to understand and principles for dealing with that 0.1%. You know, more and more, especially on social media, critics of Christianity are using that difficult 0.1% against us. Now, last uh, week, Pastor Claire and Pastor Tomiko and Pastor Eric did a fabulous job of dealing with the question, is the Bible anti-women? Uh, let me do a little extra bragging on Pastor Eric. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, he spent the entire week speaking to 2,700 students in San Jose, 90% uh, of whom were not Christians. My goodness, that's 2,400 uh, students that are not yet following Jesus. After the week, over 200 of them made decisions to follow Jesus. Now, if you are sharing the gospel, uh, especially with today's younger generation, you have to be able to answer the kind of questions that we are dealing with in this series. The title of today's message is Stranger Things, Shrimp, Slavery, and the Skin of a Dead Pig. I remember our theme verse is 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Remember, our basic principle is deep, deeper, deepest. Uh, we receive the deep truths of God's Word. But then one of these social, me social media memes comes on, or somebody says something, or we see a billboard that attacks uh, Christianity, and it seems, quote, deeper. Oh my goodness, like some of the things we've already uh, seen in the opening video. What? Uh, what's that? That seems deeper than my deep. But what we're doing in this series is we're pushing through to deepest. Uh, when you have questions about the Bible, when you have concerns, when something seems difficult to understand, keep digging beneath the surface because there are always good answers to the questions that we have at the, at, at the level of deepest. 
Uh, receive deep. Uh, beware of, quote, deeper and pursue uh, deepest. That's what this series has been doing. Dan Kimball writes, here is the good news. There are ways to better understand these crazy sounding Bible verses. We must learn how to and how not to read the Bible. Now here are some of the things that the book of Leviticus speaks against. It speaks against eating shrimp or lobster in Leviticus 11 verse 10. Against eating pork in Leviticus 11 verse 7. Against blending two types of fabric, such as a polyester blend in Leviticus 19, verse 19. Against getting a tattoo in Leviticus 19, verse 28. And not getting rounded haircuts in Leviticus 19, verse 27. Now that one, actually, I still believe in. I, I think that's still a, a, good, a good command, uh, even for today. Uh, there are popular YouTube videos, uh, blogs, and articles with titles like 13 Weird Things the Bible uh, bans, you, bans That You May Not Know About. Or another one is 11 Things the Bible Bans But You Do Anyway. Or 7 Shocking Bible Verses You Won't Hear in Church. Uh, atheist groups have rented billboards uh, citing Bible verses from both the Old and New Testaments to suggest that the Bible is pro-slavery. Now remember one of our basic principles is never read a Bible verse. Now we don't mean never read just a verse for inspiration. Of course we do. But when you're trying to understand its meaning, never read a Bible verse in isolation. Always push forward uh, deeper to deepest uh, to get the context and to get the background in order to better understand that particular Bible verse. Don't take it in isolation. Take it in its context and get the background behind it. Have you ever uh, looked into some of the strange and unusual state laws uh, that are still on the books in the United States? Several of these are still in the law books today and they've never been repealed. Uh, let me give you an example. In Arizona, uh, for example, it is illegal for a donkey to sleep in a bathtub. If you're traveling to Arizona anytime soon, do not allow your donkey to sleep in a bathtub. You say, what in, in the world? That sounds as strange as some of the ones we just cited from uh, the book of Leviticus in, in the Old Testament. This law was put into effect in 1924. The story is that a rancher had a donkey that frequently slept in an abandoned bathtub on the rancher's property. One day a local dam broke and the water from the reservoir washed the bathtub and the donkey into a basin. Local authorities were called to help rescue the donkey, but it was not easy to do. It required a lot of effort and manpower to finally rescue the animal. To prevent such a thing from happening again, they passed a law that prohibited donkeys from sleeping in bathtubs. At that time, for those involved, it made sense to have that law. It was likely never prosecuted, but it was put in place for a reason at a certain time for a certain purpose, a purpose most of us cannot relate to today since few of us own a donkey. Uh, here's another one in Kentucky. It is illegal to carry ice cream in your back 
pocket. Uh, the law against carrying ice cream in your pocket was originally passed to prevent horse theft. Uh, at the time it was passed, if you carried an ice cream cone in your pocket and walked by a horse, the horse would likely follow you because horses like sweet things. The horse would leave its owner and end up belonging to someone else. So a law was passed to ban ice cream cones in pockets as a way of preventing horse theft. It sounds crazy, but it made sense at the time. Uh, in, in Connecticut, it is illegal for any beautician or barber to whistle, hum, or sing while working on a customer. Now, I don't know the background to that one, but I think we can guess, can't we? What would be more annoying, even to the point of leading to violence, to have your barber or beautician whistling, humming, or singing the whole time that you're getting your hair done or you're getting a haircut? Now, we've got to remember another principle that we've talked about, the Bible was written for us. Of course it was. It means the, so much to every generation and every culture and every generation all through uh, the history since it's been written. The Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. It was not written to our culture. It was written to a different culture. It was not written to our time and place. It was written to another time and place. Uh, just had a fascinating discussion uh, recently with Cheryl Gardner. Remember Pastor Randy Gardner, our beloved Pastor Randy, and his wife Cheryl Gardner is just a world changer. And she's high up with the one of the great leaders of the American Bible Society. And uh, she and the Bible Society are involved in a coalition of Bible translation ministries from around the world. And they are in the process of raising a billion dollars so that they can have the Bible translated into every language in the world by 2033, 11 years from now. Because of modern technology, with a billion dollars, they could pull that off. They've already raised $300 million of the one billion uh, towards this uh, purpose. Now, as an American, I thought when you came to these new places where the Bible has never been translated into that language, I thought you would start with a book like the Gospel of Mark, you know, the story of Jesus, or the Gospel of John that has so much of the life of Jesus and also kind of the theology of Jesus, or maybe the book of Romans or something like that. But they start with different books of the Bible to translate based on the culture they're trying to reach. And so they will ask local Christians where they should start. And it's different depending on the culture or on the country. I found this absolutely fascinating. Do you know, for example, in Mongolia, when they start translating the Bible in Mongolia, they start with the book of Joshua, the great conqueror of the promised land, because in Mongolia, their hero is the conqueror, Genghis Khan. And so Bible translators start with the book of Joshua. Um, in Burkina Faso, which is Muslim, they start with the lives of the Old Testament prophets. In Kenya, they one of the first verses translated to be about obeying the law because they struggle with traffic accidents so much in Kenya. In several countries, they actually start, they start with the book of Leviticus. And so the 0.1% that other cultures struggle with 
is different than the 0.1% that we struggle with. For example, there's one culture that honored betrayal. And so Judas Iscariot became the hero in the story of Jesus. Now in our culture, Jesus laying down his life for others, for his friends, for us, that's one of the easy parts of the Bible uh, to preach. That's one that inspires people in our culture. But in that culture, uh, they laughed at Jesus for being tricked by Judas Iscariot. And so that's the part of the Bible that they have to defend in their particular culture. Why? Because it, it lands at different cultures in different ways. But here's the amazing thing about the Bible. No other book has been so translated. It's the best-selling book in all of human history. It's the most translated. It's the most pervasive. It is in every nook, cranny of the world. It's everywhere, and it has been for thousands of years. The Bible speaks to every culture in the world and every culture in history, but it just speaks in different ways. It's God's Word, so it's universal. It, it applies everywhere. Uh, to everyone, everybody is drawn to it. But they're drawn, it speaks to different peoples and different cultures in different ways. So let's go to our question of the morning. Who were these Bible verses in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Who were they written to? They were written to the ancient Israelites 3,500 years ago on the other side of the world from us. 3,500 years ago, totally different culture, totally different nation, totally different time period on the other side of the globe from us. Uh, the Israelites had been in slavery for 400 years. Think about that. Four centuries surrounded by the many different gods and goddesses of the Egyptians. And now they're going into the promised land where they're going to be surrounded by many different gods and goddesses of the Canaanites. Now, part of the worship of both the Egyptians and the Canaanites included degrading sexual rites and rituals, family members serving in prostitution, child sacrifice, burning children as offerings. Uh, in Egypt and in Canaan, it was basically a demonic cult of child sacrifice with so many other uh, things going on as well. So God wanted the Israelites to be holy. And the word holy means set apart, separate from all that, completely distinct from the people and the occult practices and the worship of other gods that had been all around them and would be all around them as they moved into Canaan, into their promised land. So this explains verses like Exodus 23, verse 24. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. Or Exodus 23, verse 33, do not let them live in your land, or they will cause you to sin against me, because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Or Exodus 34, verses 15 and 16, be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, or I'm sure they would also say uh, choose some of your sons as uh, husbands to their daughters, and these daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons 
to do this, the same. Um, Deuteronomy 22, verses 9 through 11, uh, is one of the reasons uh, now when we know that background that they want to be separate, that God wants them holy. He wants them separate uh, from the countries around them that were worshiping other gods in this way. Okay, now we get into some of these unusual verses and see if that's the explanation for these uh, strange verses. Uh, Deuteronomy 22, verse 9. Do not plant two kinds of seed in your vineyard. If you do, not only the crops you plant, but also the fruit of the vineyard will be defiled. Do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. Do not wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. Now, why in the world is God asking them to do that? Well, God wants them to be holy and set apart from the other people living around them so they wouldn't practice these horrible things. A part of Egyptian and Canaanite worship, historians tell us, archaeologists, scholars of this time, part of their worship was the mixing of two different things together. This was part of their fertility cult to make their um, better able to have children and, and many children, uh, not only for themselves but for their livestock and, and, and for their crops as well. Uh, some scholars believe that the Canaanites had a magical practice that they called, quote, wedding different seeds together to have offspring in an attempt to uh, conjure up fertile crops. Uh, they were not to participate in fertility rites patterned after the worship rituals of false gods. Uh, only priests could wear blended fabric for clothing. Now this seems uh, weird to us, but, but think of someone today who isn't a police officer uh, wearing a uniform and pretending to be a police officer. So to wear this mixture of clothing uh, which is only allowed for the priest would be like wearing something that you were pretending to be a priest when you weren't actually a priest, just somebody like somebody who was impersonating a police officer today. Okay, let's look at another unusual uh, set of verses. Leviticus 11, verses 9 through 11. Of all the creatures living in the water of the seas and the streams, you may eat any that have fins and scales. But all creatures in the seas or streams that do not have fins and scales, whether among all the swarming things or among all the other living creatures in the water, you are to regard as unclean. And since you are to regard them as unclean, you must not eat their meat. You must regard their carcasses as uh, unclean. Now, there could be a couple of reasons going on here. One is health. We now know, which they certainly would not have known back then, the shrimp are filter feeders, prone to containing live bacteria if eaten uncooked. Uh, the same is true for pork that we're going to see in a moment. If you don't cook it well, you can become very, very uh, sick. Now, I just want to tell you, i got to resist the urge to go off on a tangent because this is one of my favorite subjects. These words were written 3,400 years ago. And yet there's accurate medical and scientific information that has been discovered by scientists only 100 years ago. So 3,300 years 
before they were discovered by scientists. I uh, preached a sermon, it's probably in our archives, I guess, uh, called a few years back called Time Machine Moses. It's as if Moses went in a time machine from today with all the scientific medical information that has been discovered through research and now shares it with the Israelites uh, 3,400 years ago. And I'm telling you, there are just so many of these throughout the books of Leviticus and Exodus and, and Numbers Deuteronomy. It, it's, just, it's just crazy. I mean, I, I want to tell you, if I only had that evidence for the truthfulness, the supernatural nature uh, of this book, if I only had that medical information that was given thousands of years before it's been discovered today, that would be enough for me to 100% believe that this book has God's fingerprints all over it. It is no ordinary book. It is a supernatural book. So there's the possible health uh, considerations. But uh, probably the main reason is also the one that we just discussed before, that God gave dietary laws to keep the people distinct and separate from other uh, people groups. It was a common way back then, and even somewhat today, of identifying your ethnicity and your religious affiliation. Uh, in the same way that um, Jewish people today, for example, are known for eating a kosher diet. That is one of the things uh, that makes them unique and, and, and separate and identifies uh, them. Now, here's another one that Christians get mocked on. Uh, here's a meme from social media. Amazing nonsense in the Bible. Exodus 23, verse 19, do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. What in the world is that talking about? Well, again, go beyond, you know, you have deep, and now this is like, oh, is this deeper? Oh my goodness, why is that in the Bible? Okay, push through to deepest. Uh, there was an archaeologist and historians tell us that there was a Canaanite custom of boiling a baby goat in its mother's milk as a worship ritual. It was something like a lucky fertility charm. They believed that boiling the baby goat in its mother's milk would appease the gods and give them bountiful growth for their livestock. And so God said, we don't, we don't do that, okay? Those that worship me don't do those occult practices that were practiced by the Egyptians when they were in Egypt and now the Canaanites that are around them in the promised land. We also believe that God said that killing this baby goat in such a torturous way, imagine the agony of that baby goat being thrust into boiling liquid, uh, that that was immoral and that God did not condone uh, torturing, abusing animals in that way. But we are now in post-Jesus times. And so we're no longer under the laws of the Israelites. And we also aren't dealing with neighbors who boil goats in their mother's milk, and we are tempted to imitate that practice so we don't have to worry about this command. Here's another meme that is used to mock the Bible. A professional football player um, bowing down like Tim Tebow used to do with T-bowing or bowing, T-bowing. Uh, Leviticus 11, uh, verse 8, making fun of that Christian player. Well, what does is, what is those two verses say? Leviticus 11, verse 7 and 8. And the pig 
though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. Touch the pigskin. They are unclean um, for you. All right, well, what, what's going on here? Well, pigs for the Canaanites were food and part of their worship rituals and uh, are closely tied uh, to their gods in the world of the dead. So this was, again, pigs were a part of their occult ritual. But these laws don't apply to us, so you can eat pork and you can eat bacon and sausage. Praise God for all of those. And you can touch a football. Now, by the way, they mock us for this. But even if it was forbidden to touch a pigskin, footballs are not made of pigskin. They're made of cowhide, synthetic material, or vulcanized rubber. So there, even if this was for us today, it still doesn't apply because footballs are not pigskin. Now, using these verses to mock the Bible's validity just simply shows that the person who's doing the mocking doesn't really understand what the Bible is saying. Crazy-sounding verses are often crazy for a non-crazy reason. These verses would not have sounded strange to an Israelite in 1400 B.C., 3,400 years ago. Um, let's do one more that affects a lot of us uh, today. Leviticus 19, verse 28. Do not cut your bodies for the dead, which gives us a hint as to where this is going from what we've kind of studied already, or put tattoo marks on yourselves, I am, I am the Lord. Now, parents, I'm sorry uh, to take this one out of your arsenal. Uh, there may be good reasons to get a tattoo or good reasons to not get a tattoo, but this isn't one of them. Uh, this referred to a practice of the Canaanites where they would slash their bodies and mark them with branding or, or ink for ritualistic purposes related to the worship of their gods. Tattooing for the Canaanites was a way to honor their gods and to honor the dead. So it has nothing to do with us today. Uh, here's another theme verse of this series. It's 2 Timothy 2 verse 15. Do your best to protect, present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker. It takes work to go beyond deep and so-called deeper to get to deepest. That, that takes work. Who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles, correctly handles the word of truth. So now we have the question, which of the 613 Old Testament laws continue for us today? Well, they're divided into three categories. Civil uh, laws were just for the Israelites in 1400 B.C. So none of those civil laws apply to us today. The answer is no. Ceremonial laws where they would do animal sacrifice um, of, of sheep that would be a picture of Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice that was later to come because Jesus has already come and died on the cross Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Uh, because that has now taken place, the ceremonial is no. That's why we don't have animal sacrifices at our church. Instead, we share the Lord's Supper as a way to honor 
the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf on the cross. But the moral laws and the moral principles behind certain laws in the book of Leviticus, yes, they continue for us today. Civil laws, no. Ceremonial laws, no. Moral laws, the answer is yes. Now, with the time that we have remaining, what about the slavery verses um, in uh, both the, the Testaments, New and Old Testament? Well, let's make it very clear from the beginning that both the Old Testament and the New Testament say that slavery is evil. Slavery is evil. Let me give you an Old Testament example and then a New Testament example. Exodus 21, verse 16. Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. That's how seriously God thought about kidnapping, which led to slavery. And then a New Testament example, it's just within a list of other things. 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10, we also know that the law is made for the righteous, not made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. So in both Testaments, it is clear that slavery is evil. But God gave regulations to an existing condition that people created. God didn't create slavery. There was no slavery in the Garden of Eden. People created it and, and, and were, were committed to it. I mean, it's in you know, every culture so pervasive in ancient world history, just part of the economic system. And, and, and people created it out of the hardness of our hearts. But so God then regulated that which people had uh, created in order to make it more humane. Uh, Dan Kimball writes, God did not create slavery. And what we find in the Bible is a process in which God is slowly moving people back toward a standard of greater respect and dignity for all people, not less. I, I sometimes um, like to say that the Old Testament is like God dealing with us in our childhood. And with our children, what do we do? We do rewards for good behavior and punishment for bad behavior. But when we grow into adulthood, hopefully it's not the rewards and punishment that keep us doing the right thing. Hopefully it's, it's God's law of love written on our hearts that motivates us. Um, the rewards and punishments, that might still be part of it, but we hope that it's not the main part. Once we grow up, the main part should be love of God. And love of other people, as Jesus said, the greatest commandment. Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. And so in the Old Testament, he's dealing with humanity as they are children. But then when we get to the New Testament, he more and more begins to deal with us uh, as adults. Now, slavery in our culture is not the same as in the Bible. And this is so important. When we think of slavery. Uh, we think of the New World race-based chattel slavery and the Atlantic slave trade with the American colonies in the 17th and 18th centuries, which eventually led to the Civil War. It took, what, 620,000 lives to eradicate 
this great evil in our land. Uh, this form of slavery involved kidnapping and forced labor. It was utterly and completely evil. But slaves who lived at the time of Moses were more like uh, servants than the slaves that we think of in our historical context. In ancient Israel, it was common to sell yourself uh, to pay a debt or to escape uh, poverty. And so it was somewhat similar to our bankruptcy laws uh, today. Leviticus 25 verse 39, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. Uh, they are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children are to be released, and they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors. Um, now, New Testament slavery was, was common, or I should say in the Greco-Roman world that the New Testament was written in, okay, the, the context that the New Testament was written in, slavery was common. Even 30% of the population um, were, were, were slaves. Again, like it was in the Old Testament, it was more like servants than what we think of as slaves. And in the Greco-Roman world of the New Testament, I would even go so far to say that it was even more like employees today, uh, probably somewhere in between uh, servants in the Old Testament, uh, somewhere in between uh, that and, and employees of what we know uh, today. Uh, slaves could serve as doctors and lawyers. They could go to school. They could be educated. Now, again, as we've said before, slavery was not race-based the way we think of it um, today. Pastor Eric gave me some great information, uh, so helpful uh, on this subject. Um, Tim Keller talks about how slavery in the Old Testament was a form of bankruptcy law and was more similar to indentured servitude. And even then, slaves were freed after six years of work, even if their debt was not paid off. And slaves were never owned. In other words, if a slave ran away because he was, he was being mistreated and then was freed, uh, that, that slave was freed, and if the slave was hurt by its master, the slave was set free. The kind of slavery we see in the Bible was dramatically different from the kind of race-based, unending chattel slavery, chattel slavery means bought, sold, owned forever, that was happening in the United States. Now this is another tangent that I'm going to resist the, the urge to go on, but the Old Testament economic system is, is really a wonderful thing. It kind of takes the best elements of capitalism and the best elements of socialism and combines them together. That is, uh, it has the, the motivation to work like capitalism does, um, but it yet still doesn't allow for unending the haves getting more and more and the have-nots getting less and less um, that socialism tries uh, to address. It's kind of like a Monopoly game in which imagine playing Monopoly. Now, typical Monopoly game, at the end, one person has everything and the other people playing the game have next to nothing. But imagine if you played Monopoly and you played it for five turns or seven turns, let's say seven turns around uh, the board, and then you stopped. And so there was motivation to accumulate all that you could, to work to get all that you could, 
But after seven times, then all of a sudden, all the, the money, you keep the money you've earned, but then the property goes back into the box once again, and you start the game all over again. So it kind of has the motivation of capitalism while still the protection from unending uh, disparity between people that socialism seeks to address. So in many ways, the Old Testament economic system was a wonderful blend uh, of the two. Kyle Harper, a top scholar, perhaps the top scholar in, the area, in this area of ancient history, especially the Greek and Roman history, said that up until 300 to 400 A.D., no one in the world history, no one in world history ever explicitly said that slavery was wrong. In fact, Aristotle said, some people deserve to be slaves and are fit to be slaves. But in the fourth century, who are called the Cappadocian Fathers, mainly from the area of Turkey today, uh, Basil and Gregory of Nicaea and another Gregory, um, three Greek uh, Turkish bishops reading the scriptures, determined that people are infinitely valuable as image bearers of God and thus can't be bought or sold. And they concluded that no Christian, even in its form uh, of more of a servant in, in the New Testament that was present in the Greco-Roman world, the Roman Empire at that time, no Christian should ever have slaves or own people. Christians were the first people in the history of the world to say that slavery is, is wrong. Um, though it might not sound like it, the Bible actually brought positive changes to ancient slavery. Uh, Leviticus 25, verse 43, do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. You gotta understand in the context of what was going on in the world at that time, this has God's fingerprints all over it. This kind of a, this kind of a command was unheard of in world history until the Jewish people of the Old Testament era. But then in the New Testament, we see God moving people away from slavery. One of the 66 books of the Bible, one of the 27 books of the New Testament is an anti-slavery book, an anti-slavery challenge called Philemon. It was written to a slave owner, Philemon, about his slave, his runaway slave, Onesimus. And in verse 16, it refers to the slave as no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, and, but even dear to you, both as a fellow, fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. There you have it, right there. Anybody, how, how could anybody reading that um, believe that God's ideal was, was slavery? Absolutely, that's the seeds that eventually have destroyed slavery around the world. Now, here's the part we've got to own up to as followers of Jesus. With that verse and that book in our Bible, why in the world did it take us so long to get rid of the institution of slavery? How in the world did it make a comeback in our country, in the British Empire, in, in, in other places? 
How, how in the world, with that in our Bible, with that in God's Word, with that book in God's Word, how in the world did it, did it ever exist for so long and in so many different places and even make a comeback in places where we should have known better? And you know what the answer is? Sin. Sin. This, this book, God's Word, is perfect. But we are not. And one of the things that the Bible serves as is a mirror. And I look in God's Word and I say to myself, I fall so far short. I am a sinner who needs forgiveness, who needs grace. And maybe it's not in this area like slavery or maybe it's not in one of the other areas that we've talked about, but, but it is certainly in so many areas in, in my life. Oh God, I need a Savior. And if you feel just like me, that you need a Savior, you need forgiveness, would you pray with me right now? Oh God, say three words to, to God right now. Sorry, thank you, and please. First of all, oh God, I am sorry. I confess not only my sins, but the sins of my ancestors. The, the, the sins of Christ followers that have gone before me. Lord, have mercy. Uh, we have sinned. I have sinned. But thank you that Jesus died on the cross so that we could be forgiven, so that I could be forgiven. Please uh, come into my heart, come into my life, uh, be my Savior. Forgive me of my wrongdoing. And help me as I look into your word, as I study your word, help me more and more to change to be like it rather than in any way changing it to fit me. Sorry. Thank you. Please. Be my leader and my king and my Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And wherever you are, would you agree with that prayer simply by saying out loud, amen and amen. Let's close with uh, yet another 150th anniversary greeting from one of our pastors, our wonderful pastors um, here at Purpose Church one of our pastors from the past, Jeff Snodgrass. Happy 150th anniversary, Purpose Church. I'm so grateful for my time here serving at this church. I had the opportunity and privilege to work here many years ago. And I, I in fact, remember coming back about 10 years after serving on staff at this church for a volunteer celebration of someone retiring. And I remember walking around campus and seeing people still serve in some of the same areas uh, around campus. And I remember leaving that night thinking, man, what an incredible display of a healthy church of men and women that believe in the vision and mission of the church, of helping people find purpose in Christ, that they would be so dedicated to serve for this long in specific ministries. And see, that night had a mark in my life of what a healthy church looks like and not only do I want to say thank you for that impact, but I want you to know that on your 150th anniversary, that I still believe the best is yet to come because of men and women like you. 
And so I want to say thank you and happy 150th anniversary.